We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Big Blue Banter Podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Nick Ferrato. For those of you who joined us for our quick takeaways podcast after last Sunday's game on Sunday night, please let us know in the comment section how it went and what we can do to improve that experience for you. We're really excited about that. We have some other interesting ideas for podcasts coming up, reacting to news, breaking news, and Maybe something about the trade deadline as it gets closer. That will be October 29th. Stay tuned for that. Same goes for our classic shows. Today's show, the All-22 Review. And if you see the title, you'll know that upon further review, both myself and Nick agree that this Giants team was severely outcoached in a Week 7 loss where they gained more yards, more first downs, including six more through the air, and had more time of possession than the Arizona Cardinals at its core I really do believe this game can be, can be boiled down to Cardinals head coach Cliff Kingsbury's excellent game plan on how to attack James Betcher's scheme and the soft boxes he was playing. And by boxes, I mean the Giants will, for example, have six players, two defensive interior linemen, two edge guys on the defensive line, and then two guys at that second level. And that makes up what we would call a six-man box. Or if they have three, it makes up a seven at that second level, makes up a seven-man box. And simply put, Kingsbury's game plan was specific to attacking what Betcher likes to do, and that's having soft players on the edge. Uh, two outside linebackers, Golden, Carter, Zimenez, guys who are 250 pounds or lighter, and then soft guys in the middle. A lot of the times in this game, we saw Ogletree and Peppers as the two linebackers, quote-unquote, in the box. Those are guys who just cannot be expected to hold up against the run. When the posing offense has either... The amount of blockers to match them, six or seven or one more. So on that note, Nick, let's start with this one. What did you see from Cliff Kingsbury's offense early on 
that was game plan specific to attack James Betcher's defense. I mean, you laid it out pretty perfectly there, my man. The Giants defense played almost exclusively in that two down lineman nickel look with Golden, Zimenez, and Carter rotating as that outside linebacker. Not a lot of beef there. And that was the way for the Giants to combat the speed and playmaking ability of Kyler Murray, which obviously meant the big boys weren't on the field as much. So BJ Hill only ended up playing 19 defensive snaps, Tomlinson 30, Lawrence 40, Olsen Pierre 16, and McIntosh didn't even see the field for the total of 16. 61 defensive snaps the Giants ended up playing. And that led to so many favorable boxes for the Cardinals to exploit. And that was exactly the case. The two down linemen the Giants would have on the field almost always lined up as a one tech and a three tech. And the Cardinals made it a point, especially in the first half, to run towards that one technique side, whether it was the boundary or field, strength or not. And they found a lot of success early on doing that. Kingsbury really utilized so many different looks and play styles to confuse this Giants defense. He would show a jet sweep and then fake a jet sweep. He utilized counters, misdirections, bubbles against numbers, motion tap passes that are really prevalent in the NFL right now. Really any way to get numbers in space while muddling up the defense's responsibilities and run fits. And linebackers weren't out there all the time. Traditional linebackers, like you said, Peppers was down there a lot. So Run fits are just different for safeties and linebackers when it comes to that. It was kind of unfortunate to see, to be honest. I mean, let me talk about Arizona's first drive of the game for a second, all right? They found themselves in a third and seven on the Giants' 39-yard line. At this point, Kingsbury knew he was going to go for it on fourth down. So he calls a smart play to set his rookie quarterback up in an optimal situation on fourth down. This is solid planning and situational football from the Cardinals coaching staff, and it's executed well. The Cardinals had a bunch to the field with the backside receiver off the numbers by about three yards. And the Giants have Jabril Peppers towards that field side, but off the bunch and towards the line of scrimmage by about five yards, which shows two things to the offense, a possible blitz in a high leverage situation, and that they have space between the bunch and that third defender, whom is Peppers. This alignment from the Giants essentially gave the Cardinals the exact numbers and space they wanted to the outside, which would set them up to continue that opening drive. Peppers ends up blitzing, leaving Ogletree to get outside from the middle linebacker position, where Larry Fitzgerald and Demir Bird are stalk blocking the only two defenders that are outside, while Farrell Cooper catches that bubble, picks up four yards, and sets up the fourth and three with all the intentions in the world to go for it, which Kinberry does. And he flips the formation by using the same look to the field and he attacks the man coverage that he knows the Giants are going to utilize. This time the Giants cover the bunch with three corners to that side, but in banjo coverage, which is essentially a way to guard against stacks and bunches. We've talked about it on the podcast. One defensive back will take the receiver that releases outside, while another handles inside leverage, and another will take the deep man, which results in man coverage by using zone concepts. Kingsbury ran an easy mesh concept with a replacement route, but the devil is in the details here. Fitzgerald is the wide receiver on the line of scrimmage in the bunch, and he releases off the line of scrimmage, goes inside of Grant Haley, which is one good way to cause hesitation on an inside breaking route, and there's no outside breaking route on this play, so it renders that defensive responsibility ineffective. Chandler and Haley are not on the same page, and they both give up inside leverage to both routes, and it results in an easy first down for Trent Sherfield. It seems like they had a miscommunication on who should be taking the inside receiver. It's just, man, it's just another microcosm of these players not being on the same page, but it's still very good scheming and detail-oriented execution that put the Giants in this vulnerable spot early in the game, a spot that would lead to the Chase Edmonds' first touchdown. Yeah, and I mean, even before that Chase Edmonds first touchdown, they had back-to-back pitch, I, I call it a pitch play, where the quarterback just 
snaps the ball and shotgun taps it forward, um, barely even handles the ball. And the guy runs an end around. The receiver runs an end around, essentially, back to back with Cooper and Isabella for 10 yards combined. I mean, listen, in this game, Nick, we've talked about this in the past. We've mentioned this multiple times on this podcast that both of us were concerned about the Giants schematic style. And, you know, it finally happened where they got their hand caught in the cookie jar here with Betcher. When you play just two interior defensive linemen in the middle and you throw guys like Carter and Zimenez and and Golden on the edge, guys who are 250 pounds soaking wet, if at best, and you put Ogletree as your only guy in the middle or you give him Jabril Peppers as a box linebacker, which we saw over and over in this game, sometimes just those two in the box. To, to, you know, counter the 10 personnel the Cardinals were showing at times, the four receivers or whatever the Cardinals were showing, you're going to get burned at times. And the Cardinals finally took advantage of this. I mean, it really, this game boils down to three 20 plus rushing plays by Chase Edmonds and then two 12 yard plays, which I'll get to in a minute because one of them stood out to me um, as a play that just free 12 yards for the Cardinals based on what the Giants defense showed um, against their, against this. But Besides that, the Cardinals averaged just 2.68 yards per carry on 35 carries with the exception of those three runs for 62 and three touchdowns. That doesn't even include the two 12-yarders. You take those out, and the Cardinals are not even running for more than two yards per carry. Uh, Nick, do me a favor here. Dive a little deeper on any or all of the three touchdown runs. Break those down for us. Tell me what happened to the Giants on those plays. Yeah, some of the things I saw just from their rushing attack overall, the Cardinals offense made it a point of emphasis to attack the outside parts of the line of scrimmage, whereas Menez and Carter were, as we were just alluding to. They wanted to stretch the defense horizontally in the run game and create creases against the lighter personnel while bringing major beef through. The Cardinals will pull two to three linemen on some plays. I also saw the Cardinals put Ogletree actually in conflict several times. Not to go on a tangent about Ogletree, but they did put Ogletree in conflict throughout the game with RPO zone reads and high-low concepts that would kind of always put Ogletree in these precarious situations. And I'm not overly high on Ogletree as a high-level starter in the league, but I don't feel this was necessarily an indictment on his play per se. I think the Cardinals and most teams in the NFL always do this to second-level defenders, and Ogletree happened to be the one who played 64 snaps in the game, whereas Mayo only played 29 snaps. The Giants would mind, like we said, Peppers, Michael Thomas in the box, but I did see Ogletree struggle when he was the defender in conflict, none more evident than the second touchdown by Edmonds, where it was a halfback delay. And Kyler just glances at Fitzgerald, who was the number two receiver to Ogletree's side right before he hands the ball off. And that prompted Ogletree to fade into coverage towards the inside part of Larry Fitzgerald, which provided the space for Charles Clay to locate him at the second level and create that gigantic hole. I mean, it was definitely a tough play to defend, and it would be a tough position for any linebacker to be in, but the top-level linebackers can overcome these kind of things, and he's just not that when it comes to these specific things. We've seen this happen over the last two seasons. But that first touchdown by Edmonds, man, it was on a first and 10, 821 left in the first. The Cardinals ran to the boundary side and did a pre-snap fake jet sweep from the play side receiver, which expanded the field linebacker who happened to be Alec Ogletree. Now that was his responsibility there. He has to expand. I'm not necessarily, it's not an indictment on him, but that's just what happened. He followed that fake jet sweep which eliminates him from a play. A defender that was going to be involved eliminated him. Excellent scheming by Kingsbury. The Giants did so many things wrong on this play, though. The Giants had Olsen Pierre as the three-tech and O'Shane Zimenez as the six-tech cover down on the tight end. The Cardinals pin 
Pierre with the tackle and yep. block him back into Peppers. And then Arizona pulled the play side guard, backside guard, and the center towards the boundary. The Cardinals saw a weakness in the run game with Pierre and Zimenez towards the boundary, as we talked about, and they attacked it with three pullers, all sliding towards it. Zimenez cannot set the edge, and he was he was really abused by Max William on this play. He was totally hinged away from the play. And the fake jet sweep made Peppers hesitate, and by the time he realized where the pullers were going and where the play was actually going, Pierre was already blocked into the second level. So essentially, DJ Humphreys eliminated Pierre and Peppers from the play. And Michael Thomas acted as the contained defender on this play, but I do not believe that was his responsibility because both Thomas and DeAndre Baker went for Justin Pugh, who was the outside puller. So one of them made a mistake because nobody filled the alley on that second puller, and then Peppers couldn't get over there either. So there was absolutely nobody there. There was a puller without a blocking responsibility and then chase Edmonds just running free so that was just a really bad look for the Giants defense and it happened to create that huge hole let me let me just let me just jump in real quick I understand and I agree with you that you know you can talk about this you know from that specific standpoint you know a player a doesn't get over fast enough player b is getting pulled but really to me it boils down to just specific game planning and Really, no solu- no real sol- there's no real solution here for me. When I look in my notes and I see that on this play, they have Olsen Pierre as a three-tech gap shooter here. They have Carter on the field in the box. They have a six-man box here. Pierre's one of them. He's playing the role of a three-tech, three-tech gap shooter. That's his responsibility. Then they have Lorenzo Carter, Shane Eximinens, two guys who maybe could be 250 pounds if they're lucky. B.J. Hill is literally only beef on the field. And then Alec Ogletree, who's been terrible his whole career when the balls run right at him, and Jabril Peppers, that's their six-man box there against five Cardinals offensive linemen and a blocking tight end. You just can't win that. You're just not going to win that stand. You know, that, it, it's a six-on-six, six, so it's like, you know, it's not like the Cardinals have an advantage, which you rarely see in the NFL with more blockers than defenders. Usually, you'll either get the even box or you'll see what happened. And we'll get to this later, trust me, because it's beyond frustrating when you're – because the Giants do it all the time when you're running – at a, at a, a box at you, where you're overmatched, essentially you have six blockers versus seven guys in the box or seven blockers versus eight in the box, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, on this one, and, and it's true what you said, I mean, the motion killed them. And that's a kudos to King Kingsbury again for running a lot of motion. Really, the only times I was even happy at all with Sherman's game were the few play calls where he used that pre-step motion as well, something he needs to do a lot more of. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, Nick, to me, it's just a matter of how can you win when your box, when your when your box, your front consists of Ziminens, Carter, Peppers, and Ogletree. There's just no beef there. And all, even Olsen Pierre, I mean, whose responsibility here is to shoot the gap. So, I mean, I don't know. Tell me if I'm wrong there, but I don't find a, I don't see a solution there based on the personnel. No, you're not wrong whatsoever. And again, it was a situation. It was a first and 10. That's predominantly a running down. I mean, you can pass on it, but you want more beef there. It's a first and 10 towards the red zone. So you right. would like to see bigger bodies there to stop and clog these gaps. And it was one of those things where I'm pretty sure Cliff Kingsbury looked and was like, is that the personnel on the field? Okay, we're definitely attacking this. Tag it to the boundary. And resulted in a touchdown. And then we saw the third touchdown too. Came in the third quarter with 6-11 left. It was another favorable box, man, with Ogletree yep. who slid to be the contained defender on the field side hash, which eliminated him from the run play. The Cardinals ran his own read with the play side guard and center pulling outside toward the boundary once again. This time, 
Lawrence was the play side one technique. And yet again, man, Dexter Lawrence was probably his worst game. I mean, he struggled to handle that responsibility when he was down blocked by a lineman in space who could locate him, which we saw on this play. He got put on his ass. Lawrence flowed with the pullers but was abruptly met by Humphreys and put down. Carter set the edge and Peppers but like he didn't he just didn't set it enough. He did set it though. It wasn't a terrible execution right. by Lorenzo Carter. Peppers came from the secondary and Mayo as the play side linebacker against a tight end and two pulling offensive linemen. So Carter got kicked out just enough to provide that gap for Edmonds. And Shipley was met at the line of scrimmage by Mayo, but that crease was just big enough for Edmonds, who was a really good running back in his own right to just find the hole, and from there on out, he just outran Bethay because Bethay just doesn't have it anymore. But the personnel, man, it's, it's a bad circumstance here, and stopping Murray's athletic ability, that's a precedent the Giants set, but it burned them on these three touchdown runs. Yep, there's no doubt about it, and then it burned them again when they're down 14-0, the Giants, and the Cardinals line up for a first and 10, and this was the play before that atrocious pass interference call on Janoris Jenkins, on, which would have been a third and eight if they called it right. I mean, that's just a terrible call. It would have been a third and eight from the Cardinals 45. Instead, it set them up in field goal range where they would um, go on to go three and out after the penalty, uh, in large part due to Lorenzo Carter, who made a really, really athletic play to stop a screen on second and 19 with 15 minutes just at the beginning of the second quarter. But before that, to go up 17 nothing, there's a first and 10, and Chase Edmonds gets 12 yards on a sweep. From And I want, I want you to talk a little bit about this play, Nick, because tw- Jay Edmonds finds 12 yards here on a sweep from to the right. So he's lined up to the quarterback's left. He's running to the right on a sweep. And we have Dexter Lawrence lined up over the center's right shoulder. So that means he's in between the right guard and the center with not a soul to his left. Not a soul to his left as they're running a sweep in that direction, right? So now, besides that, you've got... The only person to his left, I'm sorry, is number 44, Golden, who's lined up wide and 240 pounds and not a run defender. He's a pass rusher. At the second level, it's just an even bigger disaster here, Nick. The play that they're showing, the, the, what the Giants are showing here on this first and 10 is one total guy in the box. It's Alex Ogletree, and he's lined up directly over the A-gap and over the center here. And obviously, he's a tick slow. I mean, this is a play where a good inside linebacker can get through this mess and stop it for a loss of one or two. Luke Keekley can do it, you know, some of these great linebackers. But Alec Ogletree is not that. So if you know that, you can't just have your one defender, one one defender at the second level here, um, and your defensive tackle lined up between the center and the right guard because they'll just simply do what they did here. And they took 12 free yards on this play by running a sweep to the right. Um, this was just another example yeah. to me, Nick, of just, I mean, I'm not, did you notice this one too? No, I did. Yeah. This is the one where Alec Ogletree shot inside, thought he could make the play, but Edmonds was just too fast. And then Grant Haley got blocked down and it was and just, yet there's sh- nothing else. I mean, you can't ask Grant Haley to come up there as the only, you know, last def- line of defense there with, with no one. Right. I mean, everybody Grant- went inside on that play. Golden slanted inside as well, was met by a puller and then. Ogletree t- just took a bad angle and right. just couldn't locate. And it was just one of those things where this box and the way that Betcher ran the defense against his Cardinals team just worked against them. Yeah. And while we're on it, I will say this, Nick, because we did want to mention this. Both of us had this in our notes. And, you know, I think this is one of the things you only kind of see if you watch the all 22 week after week. But man, oh, man, is Grant Haley not the toughest 185 pound player in NFL history? He definitely is, man. I mean, he just there's so many plays. And as you would say, man, I would say Grant Haley had kind of a Jekyll and Hyde type of first quarter because it's the same thing that we see from him. Really, really strong against the run. Yet he is a liability in the past. And it's 
we say it time and time again on this podcast, but there were tackles that he made fighting through tight end blocks, reading bubbles, coming down aggressively, going inside. He's an incredibly tough player, but man, if you need a play on third and 10, they're going to attack Haley. I feel like the Giants should use him situationally, honestly. You can't ask him to put, put on too much more weight on his frame because he's only five foot nine. But like, I almost feel like he should be used as a situational nickel guy. Use him on the early downs to kind of help you in this run game. It's amazing to say this. It really is amazing to sit here and tell people who are listening for Giants analysis that Grant Haley is one of the, the key reasons the Giants didn't give up more than five. They gave up five plays of 10 plus yards, three plays of 20 plus yards in the run game. And that number would have been almost double and not double, but maybe three, you can add three or four more of those without Haley, where he's just really just fighting through messes and fighting through ridiculous blocks that he should never beat at 185 pounds to stop run plays. Um, He stopped Dave Johnson on his only carry. That would have been a big gain if not for Haley. I mean, it was, it shows up week after week. Yeah, he beat Larry Fitzgerald on like two blocks where he just beat Fitzgerald inside and Fitzgerald looked like he was shocked because Haley had the recognition to shoot that. But then they're, you know, Jekyll and Hyde and then Haley might blow a banjo coverage or just not be athletically inclined enough to keep up with some of these receivers out of the slot. So it's just one of those things which is unfortunate, but man, do I love watching him against the run. And maybe, you know, maybe it's a situation where on third and long situations or obvious passing downs, they can just take them off the field and they can start to work in guys like Love. I mean, Ballantyne's dealing with an injury, so that hurts. But mm-hmm. maybe, especially when, you know, he gets more into the swing of things, Sam Beal can work back into the mix for the Giants and they can mix around and have different cornerback sets that have Beal, Baker, and Jenkins, something like that. Um, definitely interests me because, like you said, he's really just a liability in coverage. And probably overall, I mean, it's tough to say what's more important, especially considering, you know, the the boxes and the fronts the Giants are trying to use to stop the run. It's interesting, you know, the role he's playing is bigger than you would think against the run. So we'll see how that develops moving forward. But Nick, before we move past the defense, I do want to know how you felt about how the Giants secondary held up in this game. They allowed 104 yards passing in this game. Like you said, a couple blown coverages at the same time. Also, some good coverage downfield on the Jenkins play. That was rule pass interference. That was a bullshit call. Just total, totally a bad call. There's there's nothing to say about it. It's not a biased take here. Just rewatch the tape. You'll see it. Um, and then on the bake, the deep shot against DeAndre Baker that he made a really nice play on the ball and was tight coverage there. What did you think? I thought DeAndre Baker really showed well when it comes to just staying in phase, which essentially just means staying in the hip pocket of his receiver, getting his head around, utilizing his hips in the right way to be angled towards where the wide receiver was going to go. I felt like he was in position a lot, and that was really good to see. But man, the Giants uh, secondary almost got burnt on one play. And I'm pretty sure you saw this as well. Second quarter, 1448 left. And it was a third and 14, man. And I'll tell you, man, Giants Nation is lucky that Kyler Murray didn't see number 14. Who came out of the stack as the number two wide receiver. He was wide open down the field because the number one was doing a deep curl. And that occupied Baker. Baker was covering number one. But I believe it was Grant Haley's responsibility to follow that number two out of a stack. Might have been banjo coverage. Can't be totally sure. But they was the deep safety. He didn't see the number two streaking down the field. And I believe it was Michael Thomas who sprinted from the free safety position, who was playing sort of a robber, who I don't believe he was supposed to be on him. He saw him out of his peripherals and started chasing him. But number 14 was wide open down the field. If Kyler Murray saw it, it would have been an easy touchdown. And I'm telling you, man, these lapses in coverage are so concerning. And sometimes you don't see it watching it live. But you watch the All-22, you see a guy streaking downfield. You see a situation where if the quarterback realized it would have been a touchdown pass, it's not like quarterback already threw it to another receiver or anything right. like that. So it's just one of those things that's really, really 
concerning with his defense, whether it be banjo coverages, pattern match mistakes, or any other type of miscommunications that keep rearing their ugly ass head every week. It's interesting, Nick. When you consider this defense, I'm, I mean, you are obviously a lot higher on this defense than than most Giants fans just because, you know, most fans will will just look towards the stats and, and the production, what they're seeing, you know, on the broadcast. And I get it. I totally get it. But, you know, there are some there is one school of thought that and, and it and it digs back kind of into the history of the Giants a little bit with, you know, when they had Kevin Gilbride, they ran a, an interesting offensive system that involved option routes for the wide receiver and multiple option routes on every single route where the quarterback and wide receiver really had to be on the same page because they had to know, Eli had to know, you know, what, where the receiver was breaking and it could be different every time based on the coverage. And then when you, and you saw it, when the Giants got injures, uh, injuries to the wide receiver corpse, the offense completely fell apart for large stretches because the communication was so key to making that offense work and I kind of wonder if that is the same thing for Batcher's defense and if you know in today's NFL in 2019 if that can you know you can realistically win with that as your main defensive concept you know with a concept that relies on communication and chemistry um in a, in a league where there's a lot of injuries week to week and the Giants really haven't even been that beat up yet in the secondary either so you know some of those concerns may go deeper than that but that's something we'll definitely keep an eye on Nick moving forward um, anything else you want to say, touch on with the defense, maybe the pass rush or anything like that before we move on? I feel like guys like Marcus Golden, he just plays with his hair on fire. And every week when I turn on the film, I'm just like, I love this guy's pursuit and this guy's ability to just be competitively tough. You tell he's playing for a contract and he really wants to prove himself bouncing back from that injury. So I wanted to give him a shout out. Yeah, no doubt. And I thought Car- I want to give Carter a shout out because, like I said, he made that really highly athletic play on the screen to stop points from the Cardinals, but also had a couple nice pass rushes in there, too, that, you know, once Murray did try to pass the ball, which was few and far between, uh, you really did not move the ball well. And there were a couple really key sacks by the Giants, one right before the um, right before the punt block, which was a great sack by the Giants, really good pursuit by the guys you mentioned, um, and just great coverage, good good way to fool him. And like you said, Kyler was fooled by a lot of these coverage too. Don't let it, don't let yourself be confused or fooled to think that only Daniel Jones uh, is the only rookie who struggles with you know defensive coverages because Murray Murray missed a few a few big ones in this game. Following a team you love in 2019 can be time consuming. Trying to follow everything happening in sports is almost impossible. Scrolling through every app and visiting every website on a daily basis is impossible. That's why I subscribe to Axios Sports, the best free daily newsletter in the land. Axios Sports is a modern sports page delivered directly to your email box. When you sign up for free at sports.axios.com, you'll get the best stories from the NBA and NFL to cricket and ping pong and everything in between. Axio Sports also highlights the most important stats and trends, giving you the ability to stay informed. It's super simple to sign up and it's free. Sports.axios.com. That's A-X-I-O-S. Not only will you be caught up, you'll be the friend sharing an amazing link with all of your buddies. Join the 100,000 sports fans who get caught up on the day before it even begins. And best of all, there's no paywall, no subscription fee, nothing. This is free curated sports content delivered directly to you. Sign up at sports.axios.com. Again, try it for free 99 at sports.axios.com. Have you ever seen someone and thought, man, 
You look fresh and fly there, guy. Well, then you probably saw someone wearing Indochino. Because Indochino is founded on the belief that you don't need to spend a fortune on a custom wardrobe. Indochino is the world's largest made-to-measure menswear brand. They make suits, shirts, coats, and more. And everything is made to your exact measurements for an absolutely great fit. The process is simple. Choose your fabric, pick your customizations, and submit your measurements. Your package will be delivered straight to your door in two weeks. You can get measured and design your suit at your nearest Indochino showroom or do it all from the comfort of your home at Indochino.com. The best part is that it is incredibly affordable. Almost all of their custom clothing is under $400. That is insane. Start your style upgrade now with $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more at Indochino.com when entering Blue Wire at checkout. Plus, shipping is free. Isn't that great? That's Indochino.com promo code Blue Wire for $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more. An incredible deal for made to measure clothing. You really have no excuse anymore to wear clothing that doesn't fit. Try Indochino. You will not regret it. You know, Nick, I want to flip it to the other side of the ball here. And we talked specifically about Kingsbury's game plan, his specific game plan to attack what James Betcher and the Giants defense does. Now, my question for you, Nick, is where the hell was this for Pat Shermer? Where was his game plan? And how come after he had 10 days to prepare, more than any other coach in the NFL besides Bill Belichick, who played the Jets and had 11 days to prepare for a Monday Night Football game, 10 days to prepare, and this is what we get from 10 days to prepare for a Vance Joseph Cardinals defense that besides six quarters of football has struggled mightily in 2019. They played well for six quarters and have struggled besides that. And yet this is all the Giants had to show at them. They ran a lot of what they've run already this year. A lot of the same stuff. I mean, nothing game plan specific to me. You know, outside of the sacks, what was your overall assessment of this Giants offense? I mean, I'm wondering if Pat Shermer was just like, okay, we're getting Saquon Barkley back. We're getting Evan Ingram back. We don't have Sterling Shepard yet, but this offense is getting healthier. Now we'll just run the football and we can build it off the play action and just do these kind of things. And then once he realized, oh, these boxes aren't favorable for the run, we're still going to run the football. I don't understand why we did that so many times. I know that was really frustrating for Giants fans to watch, but man, there was too many penalties, too many mistakes. Can't drop the ball. I felt like the Giants utilized more 12 personnel. I don't have stats on that, but Red Ellison did play 28 of the 65 total snaps with Evan Ingram in there as well. And they tried to establish a run again on first down way too many times became sort of predictable, but I did also see them when it comes to the passing game that used a lot of Ohio concepts which was vertical and out mesh concepts, those deeper route concepts that take way too long to materialize these screens that just lack timing. I'm not sure if they're just not doing it enough at practice or what is going on there, but we've seen it happen too much. And the Giants had in this game a few RPOs, a few zone reads in the game, but I don't see that enough. I feel like coming out of halftime, and maybe you noticed this as well, the coaching staff said, okay, we need to implement the RPOs in zone read. And they actually had that on the opening script in the third quarter, but it wasn't enough. And then the coaching staff just got away from it. I don't know why we don't utilize Daniel Jones like that. And it's kind of frustrating. And I'm not really 100% sure if Latimer is dealing with an injury or what's going on there. But Benny Fowler, who was just picked up again 
played more snaps than him. So I'm not sure is that a personnel thing or why, but nah, it, it's just ugly. And when key situations is when Pat Shermer seems to melt down and just get repetitive with his play calling, running people to the sticks and just turning around over and over again with like one guy in the flat, it's getting, it's getting to be very frustrating to watch. Yeah. And I mean, this is a guy who's built as an offensive mind. This is a guy who had, again, 10 days to prepare for a defense that, and it's a rainy game for sure. And it's not like the Cardinals found any kind of like serious, like flaws in the Giants pass teams with the exception of the route that you say, the blown coverage that Murray missed. They threw for a hundred freaking yards passing and they, they, they won this game because the Giants turned the ball over. They coached terribly and they hit five big plays in the run game, the Cardinals, but it's a rainy game. I get it. But at the same time, there needs to be some kind of game plan specific way to attack a defense that has been struggling. Um, and, you know, we just didn't see that in this game. Um, I do want to talk, Nick, about one of my biggest gripes with Shermer. And I know we talked about it before the podcast, so you kind of gave it a little bit of a mention there. But it needs to be touched on in depth, I believe. Um, and that biggest gripe is that he continues to run the football against fronts where he's outnumbered. And what do we mean by that? Fronts where he's outnumbered. The box in the front is essentially the combination of defensive linemen or edge guys, whatever you want to call them, and linebackers. So it's the first and second level. And constantly, the Giants had six blockers, occasionally seven. It depends what you want to call these wide receivers who Shermer continues to motion back into the formation, hoping, praying, expecting them to block down on the line of scrimmage. It's something we saw a lot from him last year. It's a classic Shermer concept. Motion the receiver in tight, have him block. But depends how many you want to say, six, seven blockers. They were outnumbered. I have four, I think, let me see if it's four, four plays in my, in my notes where the Giants ran the ball despite being outnumbered with six blockers against seven in the, in the box or a seven man Cardinals front or seven blockers against eight man Cardinals front, eight in the box. On every single one of these plays where the Giants tried to run the ball despite being outnumbered in the box, it was an unsuccessful run play. Two yard gains on first and 10. Three of them came on first and 10, putting the team behind the sticks and second and long. A constant Pat Shermer thing. We saw it on first and 10 with Pat Shermer runs uh, eight man and against an eight man Cardinals box. We saw it later when the Giants are already down 14 nothing. Pat Shermer says, I've got a good idea, Nick. It's first and 10. Let's run Saquon Barkley out of the shotgun with just six blockers on the line, including Red Ellison, against a seven-man Cardinals front, who not only outnumbers you, but ding, 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 they notice number 85 Ellison is on the field for a reason, because he hasn't been playing the snaps before that Ingram has in their freaking 11 personnel. And I wonder why Ellison 85 is on the field when you're in shotgun here. It's because you're going to run the freaking football in first and 10 against an out, a front that outnumbers you, and you're going to get no gain here. And I charted, like I said, four instances where this happened. Obviously, one came on that stalled Giants drive of the final drive of the third quarter, which really would have taken back momentum, and it led to an Aldrick Rose's field goal miss. Another one came just before the, uh, the Daniel Jones fumble on that failed screen pass on second and eight, putting them in second and long. This is just game-changing plays based on Pat Shermer running the ball against outnumbered fronts. Nick? Talk me off the ledge with regards to this, I guess, fact of what Shermer is and what he's going to do. What's going on here? Why is he running the ball when he's outnumbered? It, what do you think is happening? I just think it was a big part of the game plan to get Saquon involved, and he was became stubborn with it to a fault, to be honest. And, man, it really put Daniel, a rookie quarterback, in such an unfavorable position time and time again. Because how many times did he face second and nine, second and eight, and then not get a conversion, which would lead— 
to third and eight or not get a completion, I should say, which would lead to third and eight. And it's just one of those things, man, that was just frustrating. And I can't tell you how frustrated I was watching this all 22 and seeing Benny Fowler, Cody Latimer and Darius Slayton brought to the line of scrimmage to block a linebacker. That pissed me off so many damn times and they were never effective their angles everything their strength it just never worked and i'm not sure what Shermer is doing when it comes to this but damn it needs to change and i understand establishing the run i'm all about hashtag team establish the run set up the play action make things easy but you need to do it in a favorable position you need to adjust you need to audible you can't just keep What's the definition of insanity? You keep doing the same thing and expect different results. You can't just keep running Saquon into boxes with seven dudes when you only have six blockers. It's absolutely ridiculous. It is ridiculous, Nick. And, you know, you mentioned it before. What, you know, what personnel were they in? Well, they were in 11 personnel for 73% of their plays, 12 personnel for 20% of the plays. And then, you know, for that final 7% of the plays, they were in, you know, various things. They had one play in 10 personnel, I believe. But the point, the fact of the matter is, you're still running most of your plays out of 11 personnel. Every coach does this. The, the Giants are doing it too. Everyone does. If you're running out of 11 personnel with six, that means six blockers on the line of scrimmage. And they're showing you a seven man front. Don't run the freaking football, okay? When you're fucking running the ball, again, sorry, sorry to curse here. It's just so frustrating to run the ball on an obvious rundown where the defense is already potentially guessing run, especially knowing your tendencies as a coach. If you're outnumbered in the box, get out of that play. Simple as that. Don't run. Again, you don't have, the Giants don't have the off, kind of offensive line that can afford to run against a front that outnumbers them. Really, no one does in the NFL. Bad teams run on, run run again, run the ball when they're outnumbered on the defensive front versus their blockers. And that's what the Giants are doing. They did it four times, four key spots. And in my opinion, it played a massive role in this loss. And that's coaching right there. That's all that is. That's simply coaching. But let's skip Nick ahead to Daniel Jones. And, and I want to know how you feel about how he's progressing at this point, or is he regressing? Give me a little bit of an evaluation. We gave our initial evaluation on the quick takeaways pod. Now we've seen the all 22 where you stand. I mean, Daniel Jones has certainly come back to earth. Teams have tape on him now and good defensive minds are bringing pressure to confuse him and disguising it well. And it also confuses the offensive line too. And it's not helped by these slower developing routes that Shermer is calling. I mean, but that interception that DJ threw that followed that Chandler sack on the third and 13 shotgun trips against the two high look that rolled to cover three. I mean, Joe throws that right into two zone defenders. And it was a similar play on the fourth and 15 call in the fourth quarter. It was a similar play that happened later on in that game. Run to the sticks and turn around. I brought it up earlier in the podcast, which seems to be one of the play calls for a long distance situation that the Giants do like to employ. But nonetheless, Jones looks at Golden Tate as the number two receiver with a pocket constricting around him and he thinks he can thread the needle. But Jordan Hicks is watching Jones go through his progressions. Jones goes through Number three was Evan Ingram on that curl, and then he goes to Tate, and he baits the throw for an easy pick. I mean, the two players' routes between the number two and three receiver, Tate and Ingram, two players' routes were at a similar depth and only about 12 yards apart east to west, so it was easy for Hicks to read and react DJ's eyes. I mean, it wasn't a good play, but Jones did have some really nice throws in this game. I mean, the touchdown to Ellison was right where it needed to be, had a lot of touch on the pass, albeit I thought it was going to kill Ellison, but... It was a four vertical route concept against the three deep look in an up-tempo offense, but it worked out. Good job. Good throw on DJ. The throw and the play call that resulted in the drop by Ingram on the sideline, that was a really nice throw as well. And it was a really good play design by Pat Shermer. Give him credit there. I mean, Patrick Peterson, who was that outside one-third, he followed the number one receiver. And then underneath was Ingram's wheel. It was too bad that uh, 
Ingram ended up dropping the ball on that one because that could have been a huge play in the game. But Jones also did a good job with his timing on some routes and throws to Tate and Fowler throughout the game. But he just needs to settle down his footwork a little bit. And sure, he's on top of the coverage change from post-snap to pre-snap. And he must do a better job of locating the blitz. He did show that. In the fourth quarter with 10.56 left, when he found Latimer for that 14-yard gain, you saw him and Latimer kind of give each other a head nod and threw it right to the hot receiver. That was good. But there were plenty of times where defensive backs blitzed in this game. DJ didn't even realize it ends up getting him killed, resulting in turnovers, fumbles, all the above. And we just can't have that. Yeah, I think for me, Nick, it's a lot of what you said. The game needs to speed up for a little bit for him. He needs to, you know, teams have tape on him. He needs to see, recognize the blitzers more. Um, All of this is true. But I will say this, as far as... Where my level of concern is right now, it's not that high. I've always known that Jones is going to be a turnover-prone quarterback in the NFL, and you're going to have to take that, the good with the bad. That's his style. He likes to take chances. Um, He turned the ball over a lot at Duke. He's going to turn the ball over a lot in the NFL, and Giants fans know this better than anyone else. That's fine. If you're making enough plays, that's fine. The Giants won two Super Bowls with Eli Manning, who turned the who threw, who had you know who turned in a lot of turnover-worthy plays, and they probably could have won maybe another or at least made another deep run if he, if they ever gave him a decent roster for most of those years. I mean, most of the years that roster was just trash because Jerry Reese was just blowing pick after pick after pick. Um, but you know that's part of his game. I'm not as worried about that. The one reason why I'm a little less concerned that maybe others are is that a lot of these mistakes are somewhat fixed. Are are fixable to me with the exception of the turnovers. Now, one thing that's not fixable is accuracy from a quarterback. And his ball and by accuracy, I mean ball placement. I don't mean show me completion percentage numbers. I don't give a crap about those. I want ball placement play after play on a consistent basis charted. That's how I'll judge accuracy. And his ball placement is still so much better than some of the uh, struggling quarterbacks we see right now, the Darnolds, the the Baker Mayfields of the world, the guys who are struggling uh, similar to Jones with the turnovers, but at the same time, the ball placement is off on more throws than Jones. So for Matt, from that standpoint, I'm a little bit excited even from that standpoint. I mean, some plays in my notes that were really good individual plays by him that, you know, you might not get from an Eli Manning, the third and eight early in the game where he scrambles for an 11-yard run and a first down, keeps the drive moving. With, you know, 5-18 to go in quarter three, he stands in the pocket, he takes a hit, and he delivers a 12-yard strike to Benny Fowler, a solution that comes back through his progressions. Um, He does an excellent job of resetting the pocket with 11-49 to go in the fourth quarter. He starts to get into a groove a little bit in the second half. This was one of those plays reset the pocket by sliding to his left and then finding uh, I believe it was Slayton on a kind of deep developed long developing deep in and this is a play where the lineman got pushed right back into him he shuffles to the left otherwise this play is dead and he throw it makes the pass you talked about the play uh with 1056 where he identifies the blitzer gives gives Cody Latimer a quick hand motion and picks up a quick easy first down on a hot read even early on, third and 17, the Giants are faced with, you know, that's a down with Eli Manning. They're checking down every time for a four-yard gain. But Danny Jones says, fuck it. I'm not checking down. I'm <laughs> taking a chance. And he throws a back shoulder ball about 20 to 22 yards down the field, past the first down marker, back shoulder. It hits Tate in the hands. It's a little high, but it hits the five, you know, sub-six-foot Tate in the hands. You know, that's a play where if the Giants have a Plaxo Burris on this roster, that's a first down because it hit Tate in the hands. It's a little high, I guess, but— but, I mean, with a guy like Plax or even a six foot two receiver there, that's a play that, you know, they're making for the first down there. And, you know, I could use a few other examples of Plaxo Burst, but I would love to. But, you know, I just can't because the similar wide receivers who Jerry Reese drafted there after Plax were Ramsey's Barden and Ruben Randall, the two big guys he tried to bring in there to make things happen. So those were misses, and those were both mid-round picks as well, day two picks. Uh, 
another another knock on Reese, worst worst GM in my opinion uh, in Giants history. But we'll move on a little bit past that. But anyway, you know, so a lot of the issues for me with Jones are fixable. So I'm still on the higher side there. I mean, again, my evaluation of him after the draft was not very high. And then when I kind of looked at him with Nick Turchin in the scope of, you know, how he fits this giant scheme because system is so fit is so important. I got much higher on him because I do see some things that he does well, that, that, that really fit what Shermer wants to do. So, but overall, I'm still high on, high on him overall, uh, based on what I've seen in the NFL level so far, just because like I said, Really, what I'm looking for, Nick, is ball placement. Is it there? And the ball placement's still there. And and you just don't see that with every quarterback who's struggling, you know, in their first or second year. But one thing I do want to touch on, Nick, and get your opinion on is there was a lot of discussion that Daniel Jones was to blame for the majority of the eight sacks the Giants uh, took in this game. I didn't see it that way on all 22 review, but I'll defer to you on this one because I think you have a much better understanding of the game. Where do you where do you put the blame on these eight sacks? Hey, football's a team game, Dan. Football's a team game, so you got to blame the entire offense. I mean, the Cardinals had 14 sacks going into week seven, and they ended up with eight sacks against the Giants. That's more than half of what they had in the previous six games. And these sacks, again, collective effort from the offense. Daniel Jones has to get rid of the ball faster and develop a better pocket presence, which we saw on the first sack. The offensive line and protection needs to improve, which includes Daniel Jones setting the right protections and ensuring the blitzing defensive backs are accounted for, like we just talked about. And we saw that a few times as well. The miscommunication between Remmers and Barkley on sliding to pick up the blitzing nickel was poor and left Chandler Jones unblocked to just absolutely annihilate DJ. I mean, that can't happen. And Pat Shermer also deserves some blame as well, because there are plays where Jones has nowhere to go with the football, which we saw on the fourth and 15 strip set by the blitzing Peterson. I mean, that's a slow developing play. Granted, it's a fourth and 15, but we, in a lot of those situations, in these bad situations because of slow developing plays, and it's become kind of a trend with Sherman to have these slow developing plays with not a lot underneath for Daniel to check down to, which forces him to hold on to the ball more. I mean, I would love to see something with higher success than just running to the sticks and turning around on a lot of these plays, but a lot of these sacks, it's just a collective effort. They're not all on DJ. I mean, they're on the offensive line. They're on DJ, and they're on the head coach. They're on the offense as a unit. It hasn't been pretty the last few weeks, and hopefully they can clean it up. But blaming the rookie quarterback for every sack is not the way to go. Blaming the offensive line for every sack, which a lot of people tend to do. It's a stat against offensive lines. That's also not a way to go. It's a collective unit. Yep, no doubt about it, Nick. And, you know, speaking of that unit, I'm— um, Souring week, I'm souring further week after week on Nate Solder. I really think there's there's a chance he's he's on this he's in the stage of falling off career wise. I mean, to me, this game it was even more evident in the run game. Last year we saw some really good games from him as a run blocker. I thought he was really bad as a run blocker in this game. I mean, there was you know some examples of him you know not failing blocks again where they were outnumbered where the Giants, where Cardinals had more guys in the box and the Giants were sending the block. Just terrible coaching, really bad play call, but. At the same time, he's missing some blocks. But, Nick, I think we would be doing, I think at least, we would be doing our fans a major injustice if we did not mention Golden Tate on this podcast. To me, he was the Giants' MVP of this game. Both sides of the ball, MVP. That's what that's what I, that's where I have him. He made my notes more than any other player for positive reasons. The yak play he made was awesome, but the big hits he took in soft spots in the zone and to catch every single one of them – over and over on third and long after third and long, making these great catches and tight coverage, getting hit, knowing he's going to get hit. What did you make of Tate in this game? He is incredibly smart 
He's a good route runner, and he's just so damn tough. I mean, he's the former Golden Domer. I love having him as a New York Giant. He had some post-game comments that I really love, too. He's like, I did not come here to lose, which is awesome. That's something you want to see. I mean, this guy is a Super Bowl ring. That's something that a lot of these Giants don't have. <laughs> so he's definitely a leader in this locker room, and the way he finds zones, the way he runs his routes underneath and provides a security blanket for Daniel Jones on the plays where he's asked to do that, the way he runs over the middle on those horizontal crosses, finds the spot right in between the safety and the underneath defender on those horizontal crosses while trying to separate from his person and man coverage. So I really liked what I saw from Golden Tate in this game, and I hope that him and Daniel Jones can continue to build a chemistry and that they can grow with him. I know Tate is a little bit older, a little bit longer in the tooth than a lot of other people, but he's still incredibly valuable to this Giants team. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous to to consider that, A, this was a bad signing, a lot of people said, B, they should cut him immediately after this year. Ridiculous. The the people who say this just don't understand the salary cap. I want want to ask you guys a question. All you people out there who have these, like, we can't sign a guy who's at this age for this amount of price, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, the market value for a receiver is ridiculously high anyway. Someone just signed Adam Humphreys to an $8 million a year contract last offseason. Adam freaking Humphreys, the Titans signed him to, Okay. So let's back that up a little bit, please. There are those people. Can you name one time in your fanhood as a Giant fan where the salary cap was an issue for this team? Or is the reality of the situation that Kevin Abrams, their salary cap specialist, who does a hell of a job, gets this team out of any trouble any year, no matter what situation they're in, no matter who's – if the salary cap is never an issue for the Giants, then why the hell do you care about where they're spending their money here? I mean, like, it's not like they if they don't have Tate on the roster, they're going to use the maximum amount of cap space and get a perfect linebacker to slot in or a perfect offensive tackle, right tackle or center. None of that's happening, guys. These guys don't grow on trees. It's not just a perfect one-for-one swap. But what Tate offers for this team – is a lot based on this game. He's the only reason they had a chance to win this game. If he doesn't make even one of those difficult third and long catches, the Giants aren't in this game. If he doesn't create 20 yards or 15 yards after the catch on that first route, the only time he even had any chance in space to make anything happen based on the game plan and, you know, the situations he was put in, then the Giants aren't in this game. So he's done this. He's done this before. He made the play to keep them in the Patriots game a week before this. And then obviously, you know, he's been suspended before that. So it's kind of still new. He's kind of still new. And he's done this all with zero chemistry, really, with Daniel Jones after not working with him at all in the offseason and just starting to practice with him. So to me, you're crazy if you think that he's a bad addition to this team. But on that note, Nick, let's move on to the questions from the listeners. Lucas Manser asks, at some point in the game, I noticed Daniel Jones changing the snap count to confuse the Cardinals. Did you also notice that? I didn't necessarily notice that, but I did notice that the Giants were calling plays right after the ref would put it down and backpedal. So they really wanted to get the Cardinals in a disadvantageous situation, accelerate the clock, and maybe not have them do a lot of their pre-snap movement with their safeties and their linebackers to confuse Daniel Jones. They're really doing that up-tempo kind of offense, which we've seen throughout the last couple weeks with Daniel Jones. Yeah, that was one thing, Nick, that I put down in my notes and I started a bunch. I was going to ask you, but you got to it first. If you noticed that Jones and Shermer were rushing to snap the ball right after the ref kind of took his hand off it to set the play. And most of the times these were quick run plays. Maybe they thought they found an advantage there. It worked on a couple didn't work on others and of course now that it's on tape it's not I don't think it's going to continue to work especially considering how often they ran the ball on those type of plays Um, but I guess I guess we'll see we'll see there right I mean this is something the Giants feel like they found an advantage of you know kind of 
And and to be fair, the Giants have found a nice advantage with Jones using tempo. They've moved the ball a little bit better there, but this is a whole new thing they're doing where they're kind of rushing the snap uh, right after the ball set by the ref to try to get an advantage. I think on the block from a blocking standpoint in the run game where defense might not be completely set for a run play. Liam Kelly asks us, I would love to see a breakdown or hear a breakdown, I should say, because we definitely won't be doing a, any kind of video over podcast, but of the t- touchdown pass to Rhett Ellison, he said, I thought it was a great throw. Some say the safety screwed up. What do you think? I mean, the safety also had to worry about the vertical route from the from the outside receiver towards the boundary, I want to say it was. I think it was Tate came in motion on that play, and then Saquon Barkley wheeled out of the backfield. So he probably had his eyes on that side of the field, especially since there was a motion. And he was just a tad bit too late. I don't necessarily say it's a huge knock on this safety. I just think it was a beautiful throw by Daniel Jones. in tight man coverage with the safety bearing down and the cornerback coming off of Darius Slayton. So it was right where it needed to be. And I got to give props to him on that pass. But I don't necessarily think it was a huge knock on the safety since there was a lot of things going on towards the boundary side, I believe it was, with Tate in motion and Barkley running a vertical. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, both things can be mutually – they don't have to be mutually exclusive. It was a great throw, ball that was dropped in, and a dangerous throw. And that's the type of throws that he's going to make. I mean, there's a chance that a better safety can make a play on that ball. But, you know, in today's NFL, I kind of like those type of dangerous throws because the way they call the rules, the safety is really in a tough spot because if he tries to attack this ball, he's probably going to get called for a helmet-to-helmet penalty here, to be completely honest. So the ball did drop right in. I'm fine with that pass. Uh SM asks, how can our offensive line both not open up holes in the run game and not protect the QB in the passing game against a defense like the Cardinals when they traded for a Pro Bowl right guard, are in year two of a second round pick at left guard, and have upgraded at right tackle? Again, I believe the offensive line was put into a lot of negative situations trying to block way too many guys. I don't necessarily think they're the worst offensive line. They're not the offensive lines of the past couple years that the Giants have had with Eric Flowers being rolled out there and John Jerry and guys like that. So I'm not going to necessarily... They all put everything on the offensive line. And I know that sounds weird because they gave up eight sacks. But like I said, that was a team game. Some blame goes to Daniel Jones. Some blame goes to Pat Shermer on those types of plays. But when I analyze the offensive line, the quarterback holds on to the ball a lot. And they're not the best against the pass rush. Nate Solder has been a letdown. Mike Remmers is an upgradable player. But I'm still high on Zeitler. I'm still high on Hernandez. Doesn't mean they always execute their assignments to the top level ability. I did see them have some mistakes in this game. But I don't believe that they're the biggest problem with this team. Yeah, I mean, listen, SM, this is what I, you know, you heard it if you listen to this whole podcast. I mean, a lot of the problems with opening up holes in the run game, because they did have some success in the run game at times. There were some big plays with Barkley, one that was called back by penalty, but just a few other big plays in the run game, some decent four-yard gains. But the issue for the run game consistency-wise is that they tried too many times to run the ball. With negative front, at, uh, you know, with I'll call it a negative front when you have fewer blockers than the defensive players that are in the box. And that's on the coach. That's where you want to blame it on. You don't need to blame that on any of the players individually, the GM for fielding a team. It's the coach. You can easily fix that by not running the ball when you're outnumbered on the front. Um, and then as far as, you know, the evaluations go, I don't think from what I've seen, and I don't know how Nick feels, that Will Hernandez is having a good second season. I thought we'd see more of a progression there. I think he's, I saw, I saw multiple plays in pass protection where he was pushed right back into the quarterback. 
So, and obviously, you know, we haven't seen enough of an impact in the run game from that standpoint. And then as far as Remmers goes, we can call that an upgrade short. It's an upgrade over Chad Wheeler, who was graded out as the single worst right tackle in the NFL last year, for pro, uh, according to Pro Football Focus. But it's barely an upgrade. I mean, this guy is a bottom half starting right tackle in the NFL. So that's kind of where I stand on that one. Daniil asks, do you think it would be a good idea to trade Golden Tate and Janoris Jenkins for late round picks? See, we just talked about this kind of before with Golden Tate. I don't believe trading Golden Tate right now is a smart move with a rookie quarterback who's starting to build a chemistry with him. As for Jackrabbit, there's nobody in-house to really replace him if Sam Beal, Ballantyne, Love, and all these other young secondary pieces we have aren't ready. But I am not opposed to trading Jackrabbit if you can get something of significant value. Would you get a third for him? More than likely not unless a team suffers an injury and they're desperate and they're almost on the edge of winning a Super Bowl. But if you could land that, then I would do that in a heartbeat for Jackrabbit. Yeah, I think that we kind of have to be bouncing down to reality here as as followers of this team. A lot of people kind of have an over an expectation that's not exactly, you know, based in what's actually happened when it comes to trades. I mean, what we're not going to get a th- the Giants are not going to get a third round pick for George Jenkins. Yeah, in probably. all likelihood, especially after trading Damian Harrison for a fifth round pick last year, they're not going to get a fourth round pick for an older player who has a big contract like Janoris Jenkins. And an argument can be made that he's not playing as good football right now as Damon Harrison was last year when he was traded for a fifth rounder. So in all likelihood, the Giants could be looking at a sixth if they wanted to get something back for Janoris Jenkins. And to me, a sixth round pick is just simply not worth it. Uh, The Giants are going to cut Jenkins anyway next year. I'd rather just have him on the field to kind of help this defense get off the field so we can have Daniel Jones get more reps, more game reps, more possessions, more positive game script where he's not playing behind two touchdowns and forced to throw the ball at a shotgun with the defense pinning their ears back and rushing the passer. I am concerned mostly with the development of Daniel Jones. That's all that matters. That's all that should matter for these fans when it comes to the 2019 season. And the best way to help him develop is by having a great supporting cast around him. So that's my focus right now over potentially a six-round pick. Now, you throw in a team that's going to have a bad record that's offering a fifth-round pick, maybe I'm interested. Fourth-round pick, sold, sell it. But I don't see that happening, so that's kind of where I stand. And on that note, guys, that's all we have for today's show. Thank you again for tuning in. As usual, you guys help make this possible. I'm really excited about some of the feedback we've had already about our takeaway show, our new podcast. Like I said, we have some big things planned for different kinds of podcasts related to the Giants, of course, based on breaking news, maybe some trade deadline stuff. I love, I love, love, love what you guys have said so far about Nick's addition to the podcast. I'm so excited about having Nick on with me, and we're really excited about the future of this podcast. As usual, we only ask one thing of you, and if that one thing can be done, then you guys are the best, and that's to rate, download, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes tell your friends about it, to share it, to help us grow this thing. The bigger we get it, the more interesting things we can do. Start to get different people on for interviews, which we're already thinking about as well. And just other, you know, different ways to kind of give you guys content related to the Giants. That's not the same old crap you're going to get from some of the beat guys. So on that note, uh, we will speak to you soon. We will speak to you again on Sunday night, actually, when we do a quick takeaway uh, podcast of the Giants game against the Detroit Lions in Detroit. Uh, and like I like to always end these bad boys, go Giants.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.